0: Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Society of Geneva. As Unitarian Universalists, we are part of a long tradition of religious freedom and theological inclusiveness, welcoming our differences and diversities as valued gifts to our community. We are bound together not by any creed, but by our covenant. And all those who find themselves in harmony with that covenant are welcome in this house. The flaming chalice is the symbol of our larger Unitarian Universalist community, our shared historical tradition, our covenant, and our faith to light our chalice to remind us all that we are part of a larger community moving through time. We remember with gratitude those who have gone before us. We consider with hope those who will follow us. May we honor our ancestors and encourage our descendants by living our own days in peace, love, and joy. In this spirit we gather and welcome to this house. Our covenant, written by and for this congregation in 1842, is always a part of our shared worship. Being desirous of promoting practical goodness in the world and of aiding each other in our moral and religious improvement we have associated ourselves together, not as agreeing in opinion, not as having attained universal truth in belief or perfection in character, but as seekers after truth and goodness.
1: I invite you all now to join in a time of meditation, reflection, and prayer. We stand today on the edge of autumn. The dance of earth and sun is in balance for a brief moment as the autumnal equinox approaches, arrives, and departs. Night and day are briefly equal. The light and warmth we so eagerly welcomed six months ago now give way to more and more noticeable darkness and cold. In the days of autumn, may our hearts and minds, our spirits and our intentions hear the world's call for balance. The harvest will be brought in. May its bounty be enough to feed all who hunger. May those who have enough and more be not eager to snatch bread from the mouths of the ones who have too little. The creatures of the wild will travel to warmer climes for shelter or grow thicker coats, prepare their winter-proofed shelters to keep them warm in the coming cold. May those who need not think twice about adequate shelter and warm clothing be reminded to think of those who shiver through winter's days and nights and be moved to work for their comfort and well-being. Autumn brings the holiday seasons of gratitude for the fruits of the earth, the blessings of family and friends, for work that is meaningful, joys that are deep. May those who express their thanks this season remember those who have much less to be thankful for, and may they turn their gratitude into action to feed the hungry, to shelter the homeless, to clothe the naked to bring healing to the sick and comfort to the brokenhearted, to find work for the idle and hope for the hopeless, to share in justice and in love with their sisters and brothers in all the family of humankind. Let us enter into our quiet time together. May we live lives of balance, seeking no more than we need, responding with loving kindness and with the work of our hearts and minds, our hands, and our spirits, that the scales of justice for all may be in balance in all the seasons of all our years. Amen. Today... Just for fun, we're going to do some theology. (laughs) Theology tends to be a challenge for religious liberals in large part because theology rests upon premises that can be neither proven nor falsified logically or empirically. The foundational premises are statements of faith. You can argue about them, you can argue for them, you can argue against them, but ultimately theology leaves you in the presence of mystery, of that which is beyond full human comprehension. And that's part of what makes it so much fun. If the foundational premises of a theological system make sense to you, odds are that the conclusions will as well. If you do not accept the foundational premises, however, you may still accept the conclusions that are drawn from them because there are many paths to the same conclusions. Theology is not the only human endeavor that calls for us to respect and care for one another, for example, but it is one of the oldest and most fervent ones. Theology is about making meaning filled sense out of the human condition, seeking a transcendent meaning within life, death, and all of creation. Theology develops from its basic premises reasons, validations, arguments for moral and ethical positions and actions, both individual and societal. Much theology does begin with the assumption that God exists. The study of God is, after all, the literal meaning of theology. But in fact, a supreme being is not necessary. What is assumed is the reality of a transcendent. Whether that be God or Plato's ideal forms or the ground of being from Tillich or the responsive divine of the process theologians or philosophical concepts like Hegel's historical dialectic or even the existence of that relative newcomer on the cosmic playground, the flying spaghetti monster, blessed be his noodley appendages. The key assumption is that there is something playing itself out in human life and in the very existence of the universe. The theologian we're looking at, very briefly and superficially, I'm afraid, many may already be familiar with. James Luther Adams was one of the predominant liberal theologians for Unitarians and Universalists in the second half of the 20th century right up there with Paul Tillich and Charles Hartshorn and Alfred North Whitehead. And if you don't recognize any of those names, it's okay, there will be no quiz, but there will be future sermons. (laughs) Adams was a frequent presence at Meadville Lombard Theological School up until his death in 1978, the year I graduated from Meadville, so I will admit a strong personal bias for the man who was one of my teachers. J.L.A., as everyone did and still does call him, was born in 1901, the son of an itinerant evangelical preacher who made his living as a farmer. College challenged and ultimately upended J.L.A.'s conservative Christianity. He came, in fact, to despise its hellfire and damnation emphases, and in his class on speech and rhetoric, he used almost every speech as an opportunity to denounce the faith in which he had been raised. At the end of his senior year, he happened to mention to the professor of rhetoric that he really had no idea what he was going to be doing after college. JLA's story is that the professor laughed and said, well, I know what you're going to do. It's obvious. You are going to be a preacher. And guided by his mentor, Adams enrolled in Harvard Divinity School, then served as a parish minister in the 1920s and 30s as he continued his postgraduate academic work. In the years just before World War II, he was studying in Germany, where he had the opportunity to watch what happened in a culture during the rise of Hitler's Nazi movement. With academic freedom no longer a characteristic of the German universities, JLA returned to the United States to become professor of religious and social ethics at what was then Meadville Theological School. In 1956, he returned to Harvard to join the Divinity School faculty. When Harvard's mandatory retirement rules kicked in, when JLA turned 65, he moved from Cambridge over to Newton to Andover-Newton Theological School. He retired from Andover-Newton in the mid-70s and returned with his wife, Margaret, to Chicago as a visiting professor at Meadville Lombard, which is where I came to know them both. The pair of them were deeply involved in social causes and radically liberal, Margaret even more than Jim. Jim used to joke that Margaret insisted that even her bath towel must be to the left of his. (laughs) The Adamses remained in Chicago for a while until Margaret's ill health led them to return to Cambridge to be closer to the family. Margaret died not long after their move. Jim, of course, was devastated. They had been the perfect couple for more than 50 years. And he took refuge in his studies, in his writing, in assisting several of his students in gathering and preparing for publication his widely scattered essays, speeches, published articles, and sermons. The majority of Adams's published work is in existence only because his students and others, co-authors and editors, saw to it that the projects made it to completion. Once JLA was finished with a project, he was ready to move on immediately to one of the next ones he had in mind. I think he got bored. Once he put everything down on the paper, he was done. Someone else had to do the rest of the work. Followers of Adams's thought owe a great deal to Max Stackhouse and George Kim Beach. JLA's essay, The Five Smooth Stones of Liberalism, is published in On Being Human Religiously, edited by Stackhouse. Liberalism was under attack in the post-war years, and Adams agreed it had many weaknesses. It was his intention to articulate the essential affirmations, the foundational premises, the basic assumptions of religious liberalism as a modern, vigorous, world-changing faith. He felt as if he were up against Goliath. He chose his five smooth stones very carefully. Those five basic propositions of religious liberalism were first, the affirmation that revelation is continuous, we are creatures of time and history. In a living relationship with a changing God, a term he agreed was likely to conjure up some really unfortunate images, so he preferred to speak of the transcendent or our ultimate concern or the ground of being following Paul Tillich with a healthy dose of process theology's understanding of human beings as God's partners in creation, called to work with the holy in fulfilling mystery's ultimate plans but also with the freedom to refuse to do that work and because of that human freedom no one knows how the story will finally end and anyone who claims to know all the meanings and all the stories and exactly how it's going to turn out is according to Adams incredibly arrogant There is no infallible story. Human freedom makes that impossible. Things did not have to be as they were or as they are. Living in time and in history, we discover the meaning of our lives and our stories as part of the transcendent story of all creation. The transcendent atoms defined as that creating, sustaining, transforming, judging, and redeeming reality within which we do as Saint Paul wrote live and move and have our being and in which we may safely place our trust for the meaning and value of our own lives and our own historical time as individuals and as communities that meaning may be for goodness or it may be for evil human beings are free to choose And in our choices and our discoveries, revelation is continually opening up more and more. The second proposition is JLA's version of the Golden Rule. All relationships must be based upon freedom, upon mutual free consent, not upon coercion. He did acknowledge special exceptions. A child is not free to refuse to go to school, for example, and a parent may indeed need to use a bit of gentle coercion to get the child where the child belongs. But the ideal is that there is no authority, especially ecclesiastical claims to authority, that should be accepted without close examination and free, informed choice. No authority on earth can be absolute. Authority is too easily corrupted and therefore must always be under judgment and open, perhaps even coerced to change. But in healthy relationships of justice, compassion, respect, there is neither a need nor a place for compulsion True relationships are connections into which we freely enter, which we freely and intentionally accept and maintain. Third, such an understanding of human freedom and connectedness places upon us a moral obligation to work toward a just and loving community, nation, and world A faith that is not the sister of justice, Adams wrote, is bound to bring people to grief. It thwarts creation. It robs men and women of their birthright of freedom in an open universe. It reduces the person to a beast of burden in slavish subservience to a state, a church, or a party, to a man-made God. That way lies the grinding rut and tyranny of the super patriot line, the Nuremberg line, and the Moscow line. And if JLA were writing that today, I'm very much afraid he would add the Washington line as well. Religion must be active. It cannot be a passive spirituality. Now, Adams had no quarrel with the spiritual, the personal experience of the divine, not necessarily connected to the community. But he had a real problem with the navel-gazing, dropping-out form of spirituality that he saw in far too many places, including Unitarianism and Universalism. Again, quoting J.L.A., «Freedom, justice, and love require a body as well as a spirit». We do not live by spirit alone. A purely spiritual religion is a purely spurious religion. It is one that exempts its believer from surrender to the sustaining, transforming reality that demands the community of justice and love. This sham spirituality, far more than materialism, is the great enemy of religion. The necessity for embodying and living the values of justice and love leads to the fourth of the five smooth stones. Virtue exists only in relationship. If you are by yourself, you are not good. You are not evil. You simply are. Virtue exists in relationships between people, between self, and others. If you don't live it with others, you don't have it says Adams, we deny the immaculate conception of virtue and affirm the necessity of social incarnation. Embodying virtue means accepting the power that is inherent in each individual to unite with others to do that necessary work for a just and loving community. This may also mean being in conflict with other powers, with the powers that theologies term demonic. The goal is the transcendent aim of a community, nation, world in which power is institutionalized with justice and with compassion, not greed, not a hunger to oppress. In order to pursue that goal, we need to come together in groups that can use our collective power and intention for good, for practical goodness in the world, if you will to oppose and in time to overcome those authoritarian powers that would rob the people of their freedom their dignity their inherent right to a life lived in creative covenant with the transcendent and with all others other people other creatures the planet itself and this requires that we come together in groups one person alone is not going to have much success going up against the demonic powers of the world. That one must be joined by others. They must be organized in a voluntarily gathered group who share an ultimate value, an ultimate goal, in order to act effectively in the world. We come alive in groups, said Adams. By their groups shall you know them. And finally, the fifth smooth stone is perhaps the most challenging, the affirmation of an attitude of ultimate, although generally not immediate, optimism. The universe, the world, the people in our groups are so full of resources and possibilities and the overarching power of the transcendence pull through time toward goodness and justice and love that we are justified in believing that our efforts no matter how small no matter how often stymied no matter how often frustrating will nevertheless help to move history in the direction of that transcendent progress now this does not mean that the effort or the process is either easy or inevitable in any particular case Progress has to be defended, rewon by almost every new generation. It cannot be inherited and taken for granted. Consider, for example, the alarmingly successful efforts being made by the religious and political right to take away from women the right to control our own bodies or the ongoing battle to keep the teaching of evolution in our schools and the teaching of creationism or intelligent design out. Every time we think we've won the war, another battle crops up, and we're back to the beginning. We can never be complacent. There are too many demonic forces. Greed, hunger for power, indifference, racism, classism, Radical religious and political fundamentalism, ancient disputes that have devolved into seemingly unshakable hatreds, to name only a few. There are too many demonic forces at work against compassion, freedom, justice, and love for us ever to relax and think that our work has been completed. Humanity is all too often inhumane. JLA lived through two world wars, the Great Depression, the Cold War, Korea, Vietnam, and he understood full well the evil, the banality of evil, of which we as humans, as individuals, as a species are capable. War, he comments, is a relentless revealer. We cannot hide from ourselves. But the proper response is not despair. It is the determination to nurture the best traits of the human spirit in ourselves, in one another, in our groups, our institutions, our communities, our nation, and our world. And so I close with one last quote from James Luther Adams, his conclusion to the essay on the five smooth stones. In response to the primary question of whether history has a meaning and a demanded direction or not all true prophets ancient and modern answer finally yea this is the issue that cuts through all others it cuts through the ranks of those who believe in god as well as through the ranks of unbelievers The affirmative answer of prophetic religion, which may be heard in the very midst of the doom that threatens like thunder, is that history is a struggle in dead earnest between justice and injustice, looking towards the ultimate victory in the promise and the fulfillment of grace. Anyone who does not enter into that struggle with the affirmation of love and beauty Misses the mark. Thus, with all the realism and tough-mindedness that can be mustered, the genuine liberal finally can hear and join the Hallelujah Chorus. Intellectual integrity, social relevance, amplitude of perspective, and the spirit of true liberation offer no less. As I extinguish the flame of our congregation's chalice, take this flame, each of you, into the chalice of your own heart. Carry its light, its beauty, its promise, and its hope out into the world that needs you. Go forth together and be peace. Blessed be and amen.